Welcome to the Respectful Divorce Podcast. If you are considering a divorce, it is important to know that you have options for how you divorce. On the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we explore those options and provide advice from divorce professionals. We will also talk with divorce clients about what went right and what went wrong in their divorce. Well, Lisa, thank you for joining me on the Respectful Divorce Podcast today. I want to ask you a little bit about your background. Can you tell me where you grew up? What what brought you to the practice of law? Certainly. Uh, my name is Elisa Ryder. I grew up in upstate New York, Syracuse, New York specifically. My folks took an early retirement to Dallas, Texas. Um, I was entering the ninth grade at that point in time, so I entered Lake Highlands Junior High and finished high school at uh, Lake Highlands High School. Um, I was 16 out of high school. I was uh, uh, obliged by my stepdad to continue in Dallas given um, uh, my young age and I was accepted at and attended Southern Methodist University undergrad. Um, I have a BA in English and a BS in poli-sci because, you know, it was poli-sci and uh, I continued on to SMU for uh, law school as well. So I was out of law school at the age of 22. Um, Much to my chagrin, I had quite the baby face at that time, and it was very difficult getting a first job. I went to work for a solo practitioner. Uh, He had a broad-based practice. I was intrigued by family law. I had an opportunity to move on to a small to mid-sized firm that was then called Bedsole and Bird. You were expected to hit the ground running at Bedsole and Bird. My practice uh, included mechanics liens, general litigation. My practice also included some family law. And one day, one of my employers, David Bird, came to my door and he said to me, are you ready to run another writ? The last writ I had run had been to repossess an 18-wheeler. Imagine a 20-something going after an 18-wheeler. I had done that successfully. I asked him if we were going after another 18-wheeler, and David said, oh no, this time it's an 18-month-old. And in fact, depending on who was telling the tale, uh, it involved a 20-something couple. Uh, The one thing that was consistent about this tale, because it varied from perspective, was husband had killed wife and his best friend, her lover, their drug dealer. So what developed was very much a war between the two sets of grandparents vying for custody of the 18-month-old. In the course of that case, I came to work with Ken Fuller, who was one of the fathers of family law and helped write the family code in 1974 here in Texas, was a major litigator. Uh, he, He was just a wonderful, wonderful mentor. Instead of coming in and substituting as counsel in that case, when a social study sort of leaned towards the young man's parents, uh, Ken looked over the file, informed me that I had not mucked it up. <laughs> I assure you he did not use the word muck. If you know Ken, you know it's <laughs> true. Um, and uh, that he wanted me to continue as his associate on the case. Um, so I did so. Um, It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, I began looking around again. Ken said to me, you know, there's this gentleman by the name of Ike Vandenichel. He's looking for another associate and you need to get your resume out to him. And I said, Ike who? 
And Ken said, do not tell him that you did not know who he was because it will hurt his feelings. And, and, and I appreciate your reaction. And, and oh, my goodness, can you imagine it, that I reacted that way back then? Um, and indeed, I spelled Ike Van Den Eichel's name correctly, got my resume out. At that point in time, Ike was working with the firm was Seligson, Douglas, Faulkner, Van Den Eichel, and ultimately we added Steinberg and Solomon. And if you could say all of those names together fluidly, juries would just give you money. It was very, very <laughs> Um, so I went to work for Ike. At that point in time, Mary Jo McCurley was also at uh, Celix and Douglas. Um, and so I had the opportunity to work with some real greats in family law and decided that indeed it was um, what spoke to my heart. It was far more exciting for me to go after that 18 month old than it was to repossess the 18 wheeler. So that's how I started. Uh, since then, um, uh, you know, for instance, not only have I had my family law practice, I'm now board certified, I'm double board certified, I'm told I'm a one percenter by the great Claude DeClue. Uh, and uh, by that I mean I am double board certified both in family law and in child welfare law. Um, and uh, in the interim, uh, besides for the normal practice, I have served on and ultimately chaired the Texas Family Law Exam Commission, which is the entity that writes and grades exams for attorneys seeking certification in family law. Um, I have also served two three-year terms on the board of directors uh, of the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. So I've had the privilege of giving back to the community, which I assure you, Ken Fuller insisted that I do. Um, so, so that gives you a little sense of background. I also, thanks to Ike many years ago, uh, very early on, Ike called me in and said that he had taught family law at SMU, but that with his growing family, he no longer had at the time to do so was I interested and my eyes went big <laughs> and I said you're you're asking me to go to the other side of the desk and teach family law at SMU can I you know I'm 20 something how can I manage this and he did not skip a beat and he said honey because it was the 80s you could say honey <laughs> he said honey if you can teach 16 and 17 year olds you can teach anybody anything so indeed I began to teach family law at SMU under then professor Leonard Larson, um, who looked 90 when I graduated in 1983 from law school, um, and he still looked 90-something as we were approaching uh, 1990, a wonderful and lovely man. Years later, I go from small, what Ken used to call meat and potatoes cases, to multi-multi-million dollar estates, and of course, fighting over the most precious asset any of us can have, and that's our children. And so how did you end up getting into collaborative law? So I saw um, an ad um, for uh, John McShane's first collaborative law training here in Texas, which was what, circa 2000, 2005, somewhere in that neighborhood. I think around 2000, and yeah. 
right? I, I read up on it. He uh, convinced Pauline Tesler, in fact, to come to mm-hmm. town and to mm-hmm. present with him. It was one of the best seminars that I've ever attended. Um, really caught my attention. I still do litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you have to know how to try a case to represent a client well in the collaborative law process. But I had that training at the first opportunity. Um, I have continued to read up. Um, you know, there's an excellent book by Kim Munsinger about collaborative law here in mm-hmm. Texas that many of my colleagues contributed to. Um, and I just think that it's a great cost-effective way of trying to get everybody served and to try to get the case handled without having to rely on the judicial system to do so. So you, like most people that are involved in family law in Texas, still do both litigation and collaborative law? Absolutely, ma'am. Yes. Could you explain for people that might be listening to this, why you would... Why would you distinguish and what would you use for your helping helping clients discern which is the best process for them? Well, um, you know, when I took that course uh, on collaborative law, I raised my hand and I asked Pauline Tesler, one of the greats of collaborative mm-hmm. law, um, what if you have a bad case with bad facts? What if there's been physical abuse? What if there's been emotional abuse Mm -hmm. and one or both of the parties feels the need for what I call venting of spleen? And by that, I mean sort of the the, um, very strong emotions that can pour out in the course of family litigation. And Pauline Tesler said, let them talk, control it when you feel the need to control it, intervene, but there needs to be some venting of spleen. Um, In terms of earmarking the cases, um, you have to have folks who on both sides truly are willing to sit down, exchange information freely, um, work together for the common good, right? And not every couple is willing to do that. Not every couple is willing to trust the other to do all the right things for themselves and for their children in terms of resolving their conflict. For those who are, it's a wonderful and unique opportunity in order to reach a cost-effective resolution and in order to brainstorm. In other words, we can think outside the box and come up with ways that they might not get relief in court that they could through the collaborative process. It also allows us to bring other professionals in so that uh, we might be able to agree to use one forensic accountant to trace separate property claims, as a for instance. We might be able to use a mental health professional as a colleague to come in and soothe those ruffled feathers that might be created from the venting of spleen. The neutrals that you have just described. Can you explain what they bring to the process? You said they help through the ruffled feathers, but can you explain a little bit more about what they bring to the process and the specifics? So we're going to schedule a number of of meetings in the collaborative law process. Um, We're going to have the ability to um, visit with those professionals before and after meetings. And when I say those professionals, what I'm referring to is, let's say, for instance, we have a child or a party with a mental health issue. Even if we don't have somebody with a mental health issue, it might behoove us to bring in a neutral who is a mental health professional to sort of act as... um, 
the MC, if you will, of the meeting to help um, have an agenda that will be met for each meeting to keep everybody on task, to keep the venting of spleen going from going too far, right? To keep the emotions in check, to be sensitive to body language, to tone, to what's really important in the room. And uh, if your mental health professional has done couples therapy, for instance, they know the body language, they know the danger singles, right? They know when there is a need for a breather for all. Um, so they very much help the process. A forensic accountant can help help us measure the meets and bounds of the estate. They can help us denote what is community property. All property is presumptively community property here in Texas. Separate property is what a person asserts uh, they owned prior to marriage or that they acquired during marriage by the death, devise, descent, um, or some other uh, fashion of gift. There are some oil and gas royalties that might retain separate property character as a for instance. So uh, those kinds of professionals can be very, very helpful in making a more cohesive unit. In terms of the debrief that I alluded to, I think it's very, very important for us to have um, good constructive criticism on all sides. Um, there are times that I sound like my, my youthful Sunday school teacher self. There are times that I sound like a very hard-driving litigator. Uh, and, and, you know, those personas certainly come into play in each case. Um, the mental health professional uh, can certainly help monitor us and tell us, you need to be stronger. You were too harsh. Did you see how husband reacted when you said that? It was too much over the top. Next time, I would suggest that you take this approach to dealing with the husband. Um, certainly, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, all those therapies come into play in moving the ball forward in the collaborative process. So the MHP doesn't just facilitate the meeting and coach the clients in communication, but sometimes they coach the professional team. Is that oh, what you're saying? absolutely. I absolutely acknowledge that even lawyers need to be reined in periodically, and certainly the mental health professionals help us do that. It's crucial, however, that the mental health professional has training in collaborative law. If the mental health professional um, goes a little bit too far in allowing for um, the emotional outpouring. Uh, you might have a party who is using one of the early meetings as a, for instance, to plead for reconciliation. Um, and and I don't know if you've been on in on um, those sorts of sessions, but they are heartbreaking sessions. Um, sure, it's possible that that entreaty might work. That's very, very rare though. And while each person needs to have their say, at some point, it's as much emotional abuse to the person listening to that entreaty um, as it is on the rest of the room. So, so uh, the mental health professional can certainly help, um, but needs the training in collaborative law to know when to draw the line. How would you describe cases that have gone all the way through the process and how the outcome is different than cases that you have been involved in, Alyssa, that are in court? So um, the biggest distinction for me is good health and wonderful communications in most instances. Um, if, if you go to the courthouse 
you're going to have some level of bloodletting, right? Um, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose at the courthouse. Frankly, if you go to the courthouse, in a good case, both parties lose a little bit in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, in, in the collaborative law process, there is the ability to assure good communications in the process, and hopefully those folks will retain the ability to communicate down the road. Um, there is trust that is rebuilt, right? If, if folks are divorcing, there's been some sort of a, a chasm in good communications. Hopefully you've helped rebuild some of their ability to communicate. You know, I like folks who come out of the process, whether it's through a more traditional divorce track, going through mediation, going through the courthouse if need be, or going through collaborative law, especially if children are involved, I like for those folks to feel as though they'll be able to dance together at their children's weddings. And if you've had a knockdown drag out at the courthouse, it's harder to accomplish that goal. We have a lawyer here in Denton that used to say he wanted his client's children to have butterflies at their piano recital because they were nervous about the music, not because of how their parents were going to behave towards each other. Why, why is it good that for the clients and the case for the requirement to be that if the clients opt out of the collaborative process and go to court, that they then have to hire litigation lawyers? Bottom line is they, they have made an economic investment in the success of their collaborative proceeding. Um, and so the incentive there is not to blow it up, to keep the existing lawyers with whom they are comfortable in the process and to see it through to resolution. By contrast, if we are trying things at the courthouse, realize that folks run out of money, they run out of ambition, they run out of ammunition, um, they've got to go through, uh, likely, a more formal discovery process. We now have these initial disclosures due within 30 days of filing of an answer in a case. And an answer is simply a general denial, making your appearance before the court for all purposes. The initial disclosures are to identify the parties. Um, they are to identify key fact witnesses. Uh, we are to identify what are the documents we're going to rely on if we go to trial and what are we looking at for impeachment value in a case. Ultimately, we're gonna have to do expert disclosures and pre-trial disclosures. We're going to have to do witness lists by way of formal discovery. We might still have depositions, depositions by written questions. We might have interrogatories. We might have uh, requests for production. We might have uh, uh, I don't, uh, depositions of, of third parties out of state. Uh, and all that sounds very expensive. It is very expensive, and the, your question is well taken, and that is the collaborative process with everyone working together and um, striving to streamline all of that and to cooperate, the collaborative process can help everyone keep their costs down. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for joining us on the Respectful Divorce Podcast. It has been my pleasure visiting with you today and learning about your journey from being a young lawyer, a very young lawyer when you hit the ground running, to an experienced lawyer and now a lawyer that has an interest and a commitment to the collaborative law process. Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity.